0: Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show Pilgrimage Routes for Different Religions Around the World. The story of the castaway who found shelter among the Gaelic Irish after the failure of the Spanish Armada. How the population in Britain became more diverse than it had ever been before during the Second World War. Women in the Irish Revolution Feminism, Activism and Violence. And finally, to end the show, we'll explore the idea of Jesus as a revolutionary and what that means today. Now, last week, we discussed and debated the life and work of the French post-Impressionist artist Cézanne. And we explored the transition of art from the 19th to the 20th centuries. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show by going on a pilgrimage. Pilgrimage, a global ritual embraced by all faiths, is one of the most enduring traits in our human story. In A Compelling New History, Peter Stanford reflects on the reasons people have walked along the same sacred paths across the ages. And why do we still feel compelled to walk, stop and think About our lives Well the book is called Pilgrimage Journeys of Meaning It's published in hardback By Thames and Hudson And costs £25 sterling So about €28 The author is Peter Stanford And Peter you're very welcome Back to the show
1: Lovely to be here
0: It is interesting The way pilgrimage is It's something that You find with all faiths And it's something that Is a part of all cultures
1: Absolutely Absolutely I mean I suppose All places All faiths Have their sacred places and, uh, and 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 there's, there's a kind of ritual in going to them. Uh, there's a ritual in the travel. And people often say about pilgrimage that the journey is almost as important as the destination. Now, that's changed, obviously, slightly in, in modern times because we can go on aeroplanes. So if you think of somewhere like Mecca, where all Muslims, I mean, it's a religious obligation for Muslims to go to Mecca. Um, but now they can actually uh, fly to, to specially built airports together. So the journey in a way, becomes less important if you go back 100 years or 200 years or however many 100 years, really. It, was, it, it could be um, Muslims from the west coast of Africa. It would take them two or three years to get there. So the, the journey was, was, was very, very significant. But um, I think one of, the, one of the reasons for writing the book and one of the things that fascinated me was, in general, certainly in Western Europe, we live in less and less religious time. Well, less and less religious times in terms of formal religious attachments. People are, you know, we, we do church attendance figures or whatever. They all look terribly negative and are going down. But it seems to me that we can mistake that sometimes for people not being interested in what we might very, very generally we call spiritual or the transcendent or or, or all of those different words that we use for it. So the thing that really hooked me into doing this was if you look at the figures for the Camino, which is the ancient pilgrim route that went down through France across the north coast of Spain through some mountains and ended up at Santiago de Compostela, where the bones of St. James are are meant to be, um, that's Obviously, massively important in the in the medieval period. The wife of Bath goes on it in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Um, but in the 70s and 80s, I mean, numbers had really dropped down to a couple of hundred each year who were doing a substantial part of the route. Um, if you looked at the numbers for 2019, which of course is the last full year we have because of uh, what's going on at the moment, um, they were up about 340,000, 350,000. So it kind of prompts the question why are people following this ancient pilgrim route, where literally every yard of it is surrounded by reminders of faith, monasteries, abbeys, kind of crucifixes, all sorts of things, when we live in supposedly much more secular times. And, you know, all sorts of of explanations. Some people say it's a kind of new tourism, that we like, you know, we like history, so we'll do a little bit of walking, we want to keep fit. Uh, we want to get away from the world. And I'm sure all those things are part of it. But actually, if you look at some of the... the, the they keep very careful statistics at Santiago de Compostela. So when you um, when you get there, if you've done over 100 kilometers, you get a certificate called a Compostela. Um, and they ask you a few questions when you're filling in, like, did you do this for religious reasons? And something like 40% of people say they did it for religious reasons. Um, but then if you look at what they do when they get there or what they say they get out of it, the figure is much higher um, in the sense that people, almost by, by what, even if you set off thinking, I'm a complete atheist, it means nothing to me. There is something about the walking on the route that actually has an impact on you. I mean, not so great as you suddenly become a kind of going to mass every Sunday sort of person, but actually it, it feeds into some part of you, some spiritual part of you. And I think that, that's his part of it. There's a wonderful, wonderful line. It's one of my favourite lines in poetry, or last set of lines in poetry, uh, by T.S. Eliot in Little Gidding, Four Quartets, um, where he goes to this this ancient Anglican community in, in Cambridgeshire. And he talks about um, the, the, the the kind of walking, the act of walking to places where prayer has been valid, and where people... It's almost like people are following in a human chain. And he talks about it being a transcendent experience and that it links us with lots of previous generations. And I think that's something that we can access on pilgrimage in a way that we can't access elsewhere. So I think that that's part of this modern revival.
0: And it's interesting when you look at the success of the Camino to see the way other uh, pilgrimage sites and routes have, have kind of copied uh, some of the, the secrets of that success in terms of the way they're promoted and marketed?
1: Well, absolutely, and one of what I do in the book is I mean, there's, there's, the, there's the overarching kind of search for why people are doing this and why they were drawn to it in the past. But then I go through 12 um, pilgrimage sites. I try to be as global as possible. So there's, there's one on every continent. There are ones in all the different faiths. As you say, they all have very similar ideas about this. And if you look at quite a lot of them, I mean, for instance, the Via Francigena, which is the route from Canterbury through France, through the Alps and down to Rome, Um, It, like the Camino, had fallen into neglect in the the latter part of the 20th century. It's now completely reinvented itself. It's got new signposts. It's even got new hostels at the side of it to encourage people to walk that. So there's a a fairly obvious connection in that they're both both, uh, Christian places. But further afield, too, um, in Japan, the Shikoku 88 Temple route, uh, which is a Buddhist route, um, it has now formally paired with Santiago de Compostela and has started using similar symbols and they've been sort of marketing each other together. And some of the people who go and do, who do the Camino route decide they want to do more. So off they go to Japan to do that. Some of the people who do the Camino route then decide that they want to make their own Camino out of a neglected medieval past. So you see that in North Wales, um, where the old pilgrim route that went along the north coast of Wales from Holywell, the, um, the the sort of Marian Shrine where people go in the water, uh, all the way along and right down to the end of the peninsula, the clean peninsula underneath Anglesey where people get the boat over to Ireland, um, to Bardsey Island. And that has been completely renewed and revived and called the North Wales Pilgrim Route by, by some people who actually had done the Camino. Same things happened in the States. People have taken old routes or old ideas and they started calling them Caminos. So it's it, it, there's something happening and something changing.
0: And I suspect that once we are post-pandemic, these pilgrimage routes and these journeys will be more popular than ever because, first of all, people are used to going out for a daily walk for their exercise. This will be a healthy uh, thing to do. But also I think people will be looking for that kind of spiritual opportunity to reflect and uh, make sense of everything that's been happening in the world?
1: Well, they may not call this a spiritual opportunity. I think that's the point in a way. I think that that you're absolutely right. We're all desperate to leave these four walls. We're all desperate to go somewhere. We've all got an awful lot better at doing our daily exercise. So all things pointing in the right direction in that sense. We've all got more more money in, in, in some ways, or well, certainly the people who've remained in work during this time, uh, because because they nothing to spend it on in lots of ways, uh, so I think that, that there's certainly latent demand. But absolutely, I mean, I think one of the the results of the of the pandemic is it's really kind of uh, lots of the things that we we felt we could completely rely on um, have uh, 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 we couldn't in in that sense. And it's trying to get your head around that. And so I think pilgrimage routes are quite interesting routes. I mean, not because I think people would necessarily say I'm going off to try and reconnect with God or I'm going off for spiritual enlightenment to try and understand these things, but sometimes you need to take a step back and um, and think about things. And the other thing that I think is really important about pilgrim Roots, and again I think it chimes with where we're at now, is that it's the simple act of walking in lots of ways. I um, mean, you know, one of the <laughs> one of the things that that has made us terribly modern, and we think we're terribly clever because we can we can fly everywhere and we can. We can drive everywhere and we have all these things around. Um, but what we are coming round to in a, in a sort of parallel movement almost is our concern about the future of the planet, where people, in a way, I mean, they, walk, they use their legs to walk in protests about climate change, but also using your legs to walk at a kind of slower pace, which enables you somehow to connect with nature and connect with the landscape. That's often what these pilgrim routes are about, connecting with, with, with nature. Um, and I suppose the final element in it all that sort of links quite a few of them. So I go to Machu Picchu in Peru in the book, um, and uh, you know, and that's a classic one where we don't quite know what the explanation of this of this kind of uh, well, they call it a city, but it's relatively small, built right up at the top of a mountain. No one's ever been quite clear why the Incas built it there. Was it a religious purpose? Was it a a sort of convent? Was it a palace? What's it about? We like a bit of mystery in there. So it's kind of something to chew over, something to ponder on, and also something that tells us that we're perhaps not as clever as we think we are, that older civilizations, older ideas, older roots, these older pilgrim places may actually have something
0: to teach us. Well, Peter, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you tonight. The book is called Pilgrimage Journeys of Meaning. It's published in hardback by Thames and Hudson and costs £25 sterling, so about €28. Euro. The author, Peter Stanford. And Peter, thanks a million for joining us again. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very, very much. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Captain Francisco de Cuellar was an officer who served with the ill-fated Spanish Armada. Known to Irish history for the extraordinary account he wrote of his experiences in Ireland, he survived a hurricane-force storm that destroyed his ship and killed most of those on board. A new book explores the rise and fall of this enigmatic captain and it's called Captain Francisco de Cuellar The Armada, Ireland and the Wars of the Spanish Monarchy 1578-1606 to It's published in hardback by Four Courts Press and costs €35 euro. The author is Francis Kelly And Francis, thanks so much for joining us tonight Thank you, Patrick, for having, uh, having me on it's an extraordinary life that he had and uh, you explore it so well in the book. And uh, let's maybe start with the way he is known to history with this remarkable account that he gave of the Armada and his time in Ireland.
2: Yeah, as you say, that's how he's known to Irish history. We didn't know anything else about him uh, at the start, at the outside of the, of the study, other than, than the Carta. Carta's remarkable. It reads like a Hollywood script. Um it has huge appeal since it was first published and circulated in uh, the late nineteenth centuries when it's when it emerged out of Spain and, and came to the English speaking world. And it has you will find it in all at this stage in all Armada histories that are published, you're gonna feature Quellier in some shape or form. Uh, and his account about Ireland in that. Um, It's certainly uh, coming from North Leitrim, uh, where the character is set. I would have heard about him at a fairly young age, Um, but it would have been only in latter years that I actually became curious as to find out more about his life uh, and, and what he did either side of his adventures in Ireland. But the way that he wrote the account, it really sucks you in. And as I say, it, it reads like a film script. That's what so many people say about it. It's like a film script. Um, one of the tasks that I had in in researching him was to try and discover, was he just a windbag? Or was he actually telling the truth in, in, in what he wrote down about his experiences in Ireland? So doing a lot of... Uh, References to external documents to see could, could that corroborate? And rem- remarkably, so much of it is, is corroborated by external documentation. Um, the, the, the story doesn't cover the Armada campaign itself. By the time Cuellar wrote down his account, the actual campaign was of secondary importance to him personally, What transpired at the end of the campaign. Of course, Quello was arrested on the 10th of August, about two days after the last major battle uh, between the Spanish and English fleets. And he was put under arrest, court martialed, and sentenced to death, along with one other ship's captain. There was a major collapse of discipline. So, that uh, stain on his record is what hangs over the whole account. Um, It's what what colours his tone within the text as well.
0: And what's fascinating, Francis, is that when you carried out this incredible piece of detective work investigating his, his career before and after, you discover that uh, the Spanish Armada wasn't the only big adventure he got up to in his life, that his whole career uh, was marked by, by adventures on land and at sea in, in Europe, in Brazil and elsewhere around the world.
2: That's right. I um, had no notion of what I was going to discover when I first went down to Spain to try and find documentation about him. Went to see Mancas, one of the, the main repositories of, of documentation in Spain. Um, on that trip, that was in 2009, I would have got about four, three or four documents. One of which was uh, a listing of his service papers and that gave a good outline of most of his career. The bones of the career. I was gobsmacked when I saw it. it. Like As eventful as his time in Ireland was, it was one episode of many across almost 30 years as a soldier, ranging from the Caribbean to Brazil to the Azores to uh, the Low Countries into France, uh, Savoy Piedmont, and of course Ireland and Scotland uh, as well so it was remarkable piecing it together it was probably was in many respects it was like piecing together uh, a missing person's case trying to follow the whereabouts of this individual last known when i started out we knew that he was in antwerp on the 4th of october in 1589 and it was a case of trying to piece his whereabouts and where he went and what happened to him from 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 that Uh, Point onwards.
0: And he seems to have been a somewhat difficult character because he did have clashes with superior officers. Uh, Sometimes he had big fallings out. As you've said, there were times when he was arrested and court martialed that uh, he definitely didn't shirk conflict.
2: That's right. Um, That's part of what makes the career so interesting. It's not just a case, a litany of campaigns. I, I suspect his colleagues either liked him or disliked him intensely. There was no in-between. The character that comes through the documentation, particularly in the character, but also in some of the other legal documentation where he's written down affidavits, similar personality comes through in that. He's very outspoken, very forthright. He was right. They were wrong. And also, we we get the impression from... He was a bit of a rebel, anti-authoritarian in some respects. We see in the Carta he's very dismissive of Medina Sidonia, the commander of the the Armada, and also his senior military advisor, Francisco de Bobadilla. We see that uh, a very dim opinion of him by one of Philip II's senior civil servants, uh, Esteban de Ibarra, who was the Secretary of State, who also served as Secretary of State in the Low Countries while Coelho was there. And he gives uh, a very interesting remark in a dossier on officers who were serving in the Low Countries in 1596. There's about 140 officers who were serving in the general staff under the, the senior commander. Coelho was one of only two that received uh, a negative comment by Ibarra. Coelho's was, in Spanish, no nada which translates as useless. So it was a very uh, derogatory uh, description of Quellier's abilities as an officer. Ironically, three months, three, four, five months later, senior commander who had arrived into the Low Countries, uh, the Archduke uh, Ferdinand, uh, appointed Quellier to his personal uh, entourage during midway through the campaign of 1596. So Quellier clearly did something to encourage the senior commander to to make that appointment. So on the one hand, people really intensely dislike him and and on the other hand, he seemed to be able to to charm other people. So a, a, a very contradictory character, a very fascinating character for all that.
0: Very good. Well, you tell the story of his remarkable life so well in the book. It's called Captain Francisco de Quejar, the Armada, Ireland, and the Wars of the Spanish Monarchy. The book is published in hardback by Four Courts Press and costs €35. Euro. The author is Francis Kelly. And, Francis, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. During the Second World War, people arrived in Britain from all over the world as troops, war workers, nurses, refugees, exiles and prisoners of war from Europe, America and the British Empire. Between 1939 and 1945, the population in Britain became more diverse than it had ever been before. And a new book illuminates the place of the Second World War in the making of multinational, multi-ethnic Britain. And it resonates with current debates on immigration. The book is called... Mixing It, Diversity in World War II Britain. It's published in paperback by Oxford University Press and costs about 18 euro. The author is Wendy Webster. And Wendy, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. And some extraordinary stories in the book, including the first Maori pilot in the RAF who took part in, well, was captured and took part in what later became known as the Great Escape.
3: That's right, yes. Um, And one of the interesting things in that story is that, that when he applied to join the Air Force in New Zealand before he came to Britain. One of the questions on his application form was whether he was of pure European descent, so he wrote no. Um, so at the beginning of the war, there were restrictions on the recruitment of people who were judged not to be of pure European descent, and that those applied across the armed forces in New Zealand, also Canada, Australia, Britain. So it was very much an imperial rule Um, that was operated in recruitment. And then it was lifted fairly early on in the war. Um, So he did arrive in in 1941, and as you said, he was captured, and, and he was one of the 50 escapees who were murdered by the Gestapo. And I think his story tells us a lot about what's missing from the history of the British wartime home front. Because obviously, <laughs> that's not part of what is generally known about the British war effort or the Great Escape as filtered through the, the Hollywood uh, film. Exactly. Nor are the, all the many other people of different nationalities that you mentioned in the introduction.
0: Exactly. It adds much more nuance to the story and provides a very different angle than the one that you might get in a Hollywood movie.
3: It does indeed, yeah. I mean, the Hollywood movie has mainly Brits, but also Americans, and in fact Americans, didn't take part in The Great Escape.
0: So, yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, not the first time they've rewrote uh, uh, history to suit uh, their own cinema agenda. Uh, the Irish feature in the book as well, uh, including a young nurse who, whose father had fought uh, in the Easter Rising.
3: That's right. She was called Mary Mulry, but her diary is actually published under her married name, which was Mary Morgan. And her father opposed her marriage because of um, his views about the British. Um, it's a wonderful diary to read. Um, And one thing I found really interesting was that she uses the term multinational a good deal. So that's not a term that's being used much in wartime Britain, but she's very conscious of the presence of people, you know, from all over the world in Britain. Um, And it's also a term that she applies to the patients that she nurses. So she meets, she nurses actually German patients um, as well as patients of many other nationalities. Um, And yeah, the presence of large numbers of Irish in the forces, in war work, and so on, is generally missing from histories of the British Home Front. And until recently, it was missing too from most Irish history, wasn't it? Um, and in 2013, Alice, Alan Shatter spoke in the Doyle about how their contribution had been airbrushed out of history, and that's what he said, and his own um, wanting to ensure that they were never again ignored or forgotten.
0: It's very interesting when you look at all of these people coming from all over the world to Britain during the Second World War and I wonder how were they received? Uh, Did they experience racism and prejudice uh, or was there a sense that because these were extraordinary times with the the country at war that uh, there was perhaps greater acceptance uh, and tolerance than if it had been peacetime?
3: I think the the story of the war is is kind of mixed insofar as in 1940, there's a great deal of hostility to foreigners in Britain. Um, And Mary Mulrie, or Mary Morgan, actually encounters some of that. She talks about how her voice, um, her accent, her Irish accent, means that she's viewed with suspicion by some people. So um, in 1940, when there's an imminent threat of invasion, obviously people who speak with accents that don't sound English or Scottish or Welsh um, come under suspicion as being spies and fifth columnists. And that does apply to some extent to the Irish as well as to Germans. And there's the introduction of mass internment um, for people of enemy nationality in 1940. So 1940 is definitely a year where it's not a good idea to not be British if you're in Britain. But then as the war carries on, you do find a lot of people talking about tolerance. I mean, there is a lot of racism too. In other words, the picture is very mixed, I think. Um, But a lot of people comment when the war's over um, on a change in attitude. So Poles, for example, who feel they've been welcomed while they were in Britain because they're fighting with the British and they've got the Poland uh, shoulder flashes, to demonstrate demonstrate that, that, you know, they're in uniform. Once they're out of uniform and the war's over, um, they comment on on the hostility that that they receive. And similarly, West Indians feel that, that, again, they were in uniform, they were fighting alongside the British or with the British, um, and so they feel their welcome was was much more, well, they they enjoyed much more tolerance in wartime. Than they do once the war's over. When people are asking them, "What are you still here for? Why don't you go back?"
0: Very good. And finally, you know, one of the most dramatic stories in the book is is the story of of some German refugees who who ended up in the British Army and then returned to Germany as victors. And uh, many of them were Jewish, so it must have been uh, very strange to return to uh, the country which had where so many uh, so so many bad memories and, and, and so much death and loss and suffering.
3: Absolutely, yes. And they didn't want to stay there. I mean, most Germans didn't want to go back to Germany. Um, they said they'd you know, rather do anything else than go back to Germany when the war's over. But again, language comes into that. I was I got really interested in questions about language um, because when the Germans do re-enter Germany as victors, um, so the story runs that they are interned in 1940, but then they're offered a route out of internment by joining the British Army. So that's a bit of forced recruitment, if you like. You know, they have the option. either either stay behind barbed wire in internment or join the British Army. So, But they're only allowed in non-combatant roles, um, so the British don't want them to bear arms, don't trust them to bear arms. And then um, by 1942 to 3... They are permitted to bear arms, and some of them join fighting units. Um, so, when they re-enter Germany, or when some um, Germans re-enter, or German soldiers re-enter Germany, Germans in the British Army, um, they actually their, their language skills are very much in demand, uh, and they're recruited to the interpreter corps, uh, and the intelligence corps, and the interpret in war crimes trials. And they also interrogate um, German, the suspected German war criminals. So it is a very dramatic story, isn't it, about a reversal of power. They now have considerable power and authority over their former persecutors. Again, it's a story that isn't told very much.
0: Well, Wendy, thank you so much for joining us tonight to talk about this story. It's, the book is called Mixing It Diversity in World War II Britain. The book is published in paperback by Oxford University Press, costs about €18. Euro. The author, Wendy Webster. And Wendy, thank you so much for joining us tonight. You're welcome. It was, a, it was good to speak to you. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Women and feminists were extremely active in Irish revolutionary causes from 1912 onwards, but ultimately it was the men as revolutionary leaders who took all the power and indeed all the credit after independence. But a new collection of essays is prompting an essential new public conversation on the experiences of women in the Irish Revolution. The book is called... Women and the Irish Revolution, Feminism, Activism, Violence. The book is edited by Linda Connolly and published in paperback by Irish Academic Press. It costs €24.95. And Linda, delighted you could join us tonight.
4: Thank you. Delighted to be here.
0: It is a brilliant collection of essays and brings together uh, some of the leading scholars in the area. Wonderful historians we've had on the show before. Mary McAuliffe, Marie Coleman, Margaret Ward, John Borganova, Louise Ryan. Tell me about what you were hoping to do with the book.
4: It started in 2016, actually, when the commemoration really got into full swing around the 1916 rising. And it, it seemed to me at the time there was a lot of focus, quite rightly, you know, on the, the, the contribution of women who were combatants, you know, who were part of, I suppose, uh, the activist causes around the revolution. And that's very important. And that's in the book. But there was another piece that wasn't, I suppose, being looked at to the same extent, and which was really arising in many of the new sources, the new wonderful sources that have become available in recent years, such as the Bureau of Military uh, History, um, the you know pension applications, compensation claims, newspapers, you name it. Um, was, I suppose, the experience of women, uh, not just combatant women, but civilian women. So the experience of women in the revolution, more broadly understood. And of course, the impact of the revolution. And one of the um, issues, I think, that, that really was coming to light in the news sources being made available was that, contrary, I suppose, to the idea that, you know, many women weren't killed, for instance, there were more men killed. And it had been presumed, I think, that because of that, sort of women got away lightly. They weren't really that impacted by the tumult, the violence. But of course, when you uh, look at the narrative, the narrative of women and the reports, women were actually uh, impacted uh, quite detrimentally and seriously in a number of ways. And in various parts of the country, both uh, you know in the, the War of Independence and also later in the Civil War in particular. So there seemed to be a gap, Patrick, both in terms of acknowledging the important contribution women made as revolutionaries in diverse ways but also the impact of the revolution and I suppose the trauma and the silence that followed on from that.
0: And the essays are brilliant at exploring that, the trauma and the, the, the lasting impact of, of those events. Can you tell us about your your own essay on sexual and gender-based violence and some of the the interesting findings you've come up with?
4: Yes, so again, that's a very good example of, I, it was presumed, I suppose, that you know, perhaps compared to other much bigger conflicts and wars internationally throughout the twentieth century, we we do know that that sexual violence uh, is can be weaponized. Uh, and uh, you know we see that you know uh, in in places like Rwanda, et cetera, in more recent uh, conflicts. um, but it was presumed that, that that this didn't really happen in the Irish case uh, that there was a sort of code of honor. However, again, one of the uh, issues, I, I'm coming at it from the perspective of having studied sexual violence in other periods. I did a lot of work on the 1970s rape crisis centres. And when they were set up, and that was no different in a way. The presumption was, look, this really isn't a problem in Irish society. And of course, we know in recent decades, you know, with institutional inquiries, et cetera, sexual crimes are there at every stage throughout the last century. And, and beyond uh, the 1867, you know, offences against the Person acts, for instance, rape is a crime, uh, sexual assault. So, so this presumption to me that there was no sexual violence in the Irish Revolution seemed, you know, dubious, uh, to be honest, knowing the broader background. And then when I began to look at it in more depth, actually, there are examples of quite horrific uh, uses uh, of uh, rape and sexual violence as part of the conflict, not as you know, part of uh, society in peacetime where we know this occurs. So, and what is really interesting, I suppose some some people had done some initial work on this. I should say, uh, Professor Louise Ryan uh, had, had 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 done some very uh, interesting work in 2000. Uh, she published a paper called Drunken in Tams, but not much was said for another. 10 to 20 years, I suppose, really, uh, about the the horror and the use of the term outrage, for instance, uh, and how that could or might include other kinds of bodily violence which targets women. So um, also, uh, Gemma Clark and some others had highlighted a very prominent case in Dromineer County Tipperary, and that was uh, what we refer to as a gang rape, or today we call it multiple perpetrator rape, uh, of uh, Eileen Mary Warburton-Biggs, who was a Protestant woman. And that was picked up in a detailed compensation claim that Eileen made uh, subsequent to her attack in, in June 1922. It was a really horrific attack, Patrick. Um, you know, she, she it, it went on for a number of hours. Um, and gang rape was very violent. Uh, it it caused terrible injuries, both uh, psychological and physical so there, this was a prominent case but I suppose it was considered an exception so I began to look at other sources and uh, again pension applications um, have been quite important also newspaper reports I have found a couple of cases there um, so 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 my own chapter I suppose is about broadening the understanding of of, of gender and violence and how in a sense, women's bodies and their sexuality can be targeted as part of the overall cycle of violence occurring in a particular area or a particular uh, region. So the biggest case would be the w- one of them. The other, again, 1923, 27th of May, 1923, in Foxford, County Mayo, uh, again, what a, 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 was termed a gang rape. Of a woman who was in common among uh, Margaret Doherty or Maggie, as she was known, by three members of the National Army. And again, so when we we're talking about violence, it's gendered violence and sexual violence, it can't be, I suppose, pinned on any one side. There are examples uh, in the RA, uh, in, in the Civil War, in the National Army, and then, of course, uh, with Crown forces as well. The uh, uh incident uh, was particularly. Uh, precluded uh, by an attack on Mary McGuile in Drummond and T, um, which was also uh, a, a very vicious uh, sexual assault. So, so I suppose what I'm saying is that this is this is an element of the Irish Revolution, the sexual violence. That first of all, there there was a sense that this didn't happen, that Ireland was an exception. We we know that's not to be true now. That it is certainly at least one aspect of the conflict. Um, which uh, targeted women primarily, and that it wasn't confined uh, to any one side. But of course, um, the you know uh, there are other types of violence that are gendered, and of course that the one that has been uh, really sort of come to light uh, has been the, the forced hair cutting or forcible hair by yeah, Yes, it. yes, tell
0: yeah. us about that because in a way that was being used almost as a weapon of war.
4: Uh, again, it, it's a very good example, Patrick, of the way I would phrase it is how gender, power and sexuality, you know, interact in in the conflict. Um, and hair hair is, uh, is, I suppose, culturally is very uh, important. And, you know, female sexuality has also always been intertwined with hair throughout time. So, you know, women who are considered so-called adulteresses, for instance, Often had their hair, hair shaved, you know, as a way of making a, an example of them. Um, we know after the liberation in France, women who um, were considered to have sexually collaborated, i.e., had sexual relationships um, with, with Germans, with German soldiers, also publicly were humiliated with having their hair shaved. It, 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 again, there's no nice way of putting this. It, it was sort to mark them out as whores, you know, betrayers of, of the nation. Etc, etc. So in the Irish case, and again, Louise Ryan would have highlighted this initially in in 2000 in her article uh, in in Feminist Review, before many of the sources we now have, um, you know, she had picked up some of these cases in the newspapers, for instance, in County Cork in particular. um, Women' Hair cutting was used in two ways. So one, it was, I suppose, uh, sexual policing. So women who were considered friendly uh, with Crown forces or in relationships with them uh, or dangerous because of that, you know, they could be passing on information, etc cetera, um, had their their hair uh, uh, cut in this way. When I say cut, it's, it's almost difficult to find the language because it could be pulled, uh, shaved, uh, clipped with a sheared. um, you know, so, so, so basically what I refer to as hair taking. And there are many examples of this. I mean, the newspapers extensively report this, particularly in the War of Independence, but, but, you know, in after as well and into the Civil War. So it was used as a way to police women's sexuality and their movements. And I've, I've written quite a lot, I've published quite a lot about this in recent years. Lots of examples of, you know, uh, girls who were engaged in what was called company keeping um, with the soldiers. And they were exercising choice and agency in terms of their friendship, you know, and their, their intimate life, if you want to put it that way. Um, and they were punished for this. Uh, their hair, their hair was taken. So it was humiliation. Um, it was, again, to mark them out as sexually deviant. But it was also, in a way, um, to, uh, you know, sort of uh, protect information to, you know, to, 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 um, to, it was part of, I suppose, the conflict, the management. Um, of the conflict. But the Crown forces also did this quite extensively. Um, so, so there are a fair few examples of women in Common Amman who were targeted like this. Um, Agnes Daly, uh, Catherine Clark's sister, uh, in, in a raid uh, on their house in Limerick, uh, had her hair uh, shorn, cut in this way. Also, in, 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 in Agnes's case and, and in others that I've written about, Often there, you know, it was it was there was a lot of rough treatment, so cuts, uh, getting beaten up, um, and as we know, in some cases euphemisms of sexual assault as well.
0: Okay, well, Linda, it is a very uh, powerful story and indeed a very powerful collection of essays. It's called Women and the Irish Revolution, Feminism, Activism and Violence, published in paperback by Irish Academic Press. Linda Connolly, the editor who brought together uh, the work of her, well, uh, a a number of of brilliant scholars and exploring a part of Irish history that I think uh, we've ignored for too long. So, Linda, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. It is often said that Jesus was a revolutionary, and a brilliant new collection of essays explores the claims that continue to be made about Jesus, whether by believers or non-believers. The book is called "Revolutionary: Who Was Jesus? Why Does He Still Matter?" The book is published in Harbæk by SPCK Publishing and costs 19.99 sterling, so about 23 euro. The editor is the brilliant Tom Holland, and Tom, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. And of course, many of our listeners will know you from your, your your works, Rubicon, Dynasty, Millennium, and so on, and the way you have brought the ancient world to life. Can I talk to you about what 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 inspired you to to approach bringing together these these authors to 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 explore aspects of Jesus?
5: Well, I, I think that I got asked to do it because I wrote a book called Dominion, which looked at Christianity as the most essentially revolutionary product of antiquity um, and looking at the way in which actually this is the most enduring, the most seismic um, legacy of the the, the Roman world, um, tracing its impact right the way into the present day. So I think it was on the the back of that that I was asked to edit.
0: And let's talk about some of the people that you have here, because some really... Big names in across many different fields, including uh, Rowan Williams, uh, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, A. N. Wilson, uh, people like Terry Eagleton, uh, uh, former Professor of English Literature, like some some excellent and 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 different voices who are exploring different aspects.
5: Yes, so we've got we've got people from the left and the right. Um, we've got Christians, obviously, but we've got um, Jewish and Muslim writers too. Uh, we've got agnostics. We've got atheists. So the the full array of people, really. Um, And I think that that was important, because if it's just a work of apologetics, if it's just a work of, um, uh, uh, of Christians talking, I think it diminishes the impact, because I think the value of this book is as you say, the sheer range of voices from people outside the church as well as inside it.
0: And let's talk then about the title revolutionary and that whole idea because I'd say if you were to go down a street and, well, in in non-Covid times and ask people to name 10 (laughs) revolutionaries, you know, they'd name Robespierre or they'd name Lenin. but, you know, I don't know if if Jesus would appear on the list.
5: Maybe not, but I think he he probably showed, or at least the figure of Jesus as he appears in the Gospels. Um, I, I think that uh, the early church was quite simply the most revolutionary institution that the world had ever seen. Um, and I think that the impact of those uh, of the revolution that that early church embodies is one that kind of reverberates through time. So I think of um, of Jesus and the early church as a kind of a depth of charge beneath this mu- the, the vast edifice of the Roman Empire. And to begin with, you know, most people in the Roman Empire didn't realize what was going on, but gradually those ripples <laughs> of that that kind of detonation began to spill out. And I think that, you know, you mentioned um uh, pierre and Lenin. Uh, in a sense, both the French Revolution and, and the uh, Russian Revolution would, I think, be unthinkable without Christianity, because both of them were committed to um, the very Christian idea that, in Jesus' words, the last shall be first and the first shall be last um Jesus says woe unto the rich he doesn't say woe unto the you know the undeserving rich or woe unto the rich who fail to give to charity he says woe unto the rich and the other thing that um that Jesus preached of course is um the end of days and that at the end of time um uh, humanity will be divided into sheep and goats into those who who are destined for eternal life and those who are destined for eternal damnation and in a sense you could say that the that the the, the revolutionary dreams of Robespierre and Lenin were secular forms of that initial Christian dream and ideal. So I think that um, the revolutionary impact of Jesus, and to reiterate, that's why it's not just Christian voices in this volume, that the revolutionary impact of Jesus is felt throughout Western society and indeed beyond, which is why we have Muslim voices as well.
0: It's interesting what you say about the Jesus of the Gospels because is that something we have to 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 be to be drawing a distinction or be thinking about the, the historical Jesus and the histor- and the Jesus then of the Gospels and is it the same person?
5: <laughs> well, that that, that is a kind of worms that this book doesn't um, doesn't probe. Uh, I th- I think that um, Jesus the revolutionary who's being talked about um, in uh, in this volume is the Jesus who appears in the New Testament and indeed in in um, in, in the Quran, um, we simply can't say I think with any absolute certainty to what extent the Jesus of the four canonical Gospels corresponds to what the historical Jesus might have said. But what I would say on that general theme is that if the if the parables, if the sayings, and if the life of Jesus are, are completely invented, then it doesn't really diminish the revolutionary impact of what you get in the New Testament, because the figure of Jesus in those four Gospels, in Paul's letters, um, in, in the other letters and in the book of Revelation, is so seismic that here we are 2,000 years on talking about this figure. So whether he's an entirely fictional creation, whether he corresponds exactly to um, a, a historical figure, in a sense is irrelevant. What matters is the impact of the person that people throughout 2,000 years and across the globe think of as Jesus.
0: And big claims continue to be made about Jesus and it's even interesting to see the number of books that, that continue to be published about him and uh, some by believers some by non-believers and, uh, and and it can be quite contrasting approaches.
5: I think that, that in a sense I mean it sounds a strange thing to say this but in Western society I think we systematically underestimate the impact of Jesus. And maybe that's something, you know, that that in Ireland perhaps particularly, because I think that in Ireland, you know, you've gone through this incredible process of of dechristianization almost. You've become an increasingly secular society. And what I would argue is that even secularism, even the notion of the secular, even the idea of the world being divided into rival spheres of the secular and the church, Uh, uh, and religion of of church and state. But even that derives from from Christianity. So in a sense, to to, to go from being a a very overtly Catholic society to go to being a very secular society, you remain a Christian society and you continue to trace uh, the, the character of your society, the character of your culture back to that seismic initial revolution, the revolution whose figurehead is Jesus.
0: Okay well congratulations on the collection It's called Revolutionary It's published in hardback by SPCK Publishing Costs about 23 euro Uh, The editor, uh, the wonderful Tom Holland And Tom thanks so much for joining us tonight
5: Thanks so much for having me
0: And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together Susan Cattle, my producer And Peter Malloy on sound Next week we'll be looking at the life and work of the writer John Steinbeck And we'll be finding out how he exposed the fallacy And the failure of the American dream So join us next week on News Talk We've been Talking History Good night Talking History History. History. On News Talk